This is the menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy. Demolition is complete for one of four dams on the Klamath River in Northern California, taking tribes one step closer to restoring important salmon populations. A veteran chef is putting his years of experience toward bringing indigenous ingredients to an upscale setting in Oregon. And we'll take another look at how cookbooks by native chefs change the direction of indigenous food sovereignty in 2023. That's coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. An expert within the University of Arizona's Indigenous Resilience Center is shedding light on indigenous value-based farming practices. Alex Gonzalez has more. Michael Kotutwa Johnson is an assistant specialist within the School of Natural Resources and the Environment and a member of the Hopi tribe in Arizona. He says for the Hopi, there is no distinction between their agricultural system, their belief system, and their social structures. Johnson measures the success of his farming not by what he produces, but by the impact his farming has on the community and the environment. Conventional agriculture and, and even regenerative agriculture is not place-based. That's something that somebody comes up with in order to try to manipulate the environment to, to fit the crops, whereas we raise the crops to fit the environment. I think that's the most important difference right there. Johnson says the United States needs to focus more on quality produce and not quantity and efficiency. He adds 70% of the globe is fed by farms which consist of one to five acres and contends policymakers use the other 30% to justify more industrialized farming practices, which can have negative impacts on the environment and communities. Johnson says soil is the key to everything, as it holds moisture and nutrients, essential ingredients for successful farming. He argues the practice of flood irrigation that's so common in Arizona depletes the land of valuable minerals and nourishment by washing them away. Johnson says changing lucrative farming practices isn't easy, but will be necessary for a more prosperous future. Quantity is, is the big thing right now. Unless we switch that to we make it more quality, that farmer is going to keep producing massive, massive amounts of things using those big irrigation methods because that's simply uh, a way to, to make their bottom line. Johnson contends lack of nutrient density comes from soils which have been eroded by mechanics of processed foods. He says that has led to an increase in chronic health conditions like diabetes. He adds Arizona has a real chance to be a leader and change the way farming is done. This story was produced with original reporting from Brianna Draxler for Yes Media. I'm Alex Gonzalez. Advocates in New Mexico are working to raise awareness of missing and murdered indigenous people among younger generations, including outreach to college students. Events have been held in Albuquerque at the University of New Mexico, Central New Mexico Community College, and the Southwestern Indian Polytechnic Institute. Sharina Baker is among those working on awareness efforts. I feel that we would reach more a more span of people if we are educating our college students, especially our Native women and, and boys, um, so that when they go back to their reservations and they go back to their homes and they can talk about it at the table and bring it up in their community, um, we felt it was really important that we can reach out to the college students and they can educate their younger ones and educate their older ones. Baker helped organize the event Unbroken Circle, Voices for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives, which included an earring exhibit. When you're missing one earring, it kind of is like an analogy for like 
you missing a relative because they're just not complete. Um, so we created um, an exhibit for that to like represent and display and then around that we have conversations but we bring in people who are in the in the thick of it and we have dialogue and we open it up for our college students but we not only open it up for them but their families the community as well the event was held during the fall semester at the southwestern indian polytechnic institute plans for the spring include hosting self-defense classes for native students See, Alaska Heritage Institute recently launched apps to teach the Haida and Tsimshian languages. Both are considered endangered. One teaches vocabulary and phrases, the other native words for birds and ocean animals. They're available for iOS and Android devices and are part of efforts to revitalize indigenous languages of Southeast Alaska. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Intertribal Agriculture Council. Native producers have historically faced discrimination by USDA programs. You may be eligible for the USDA Discrimination Financial Assistance Program. Application deadline is January 13th at IndianAg.org. Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on indigenous food. I'm producer and host Andy Murphy. The number of cookbooks by Native chefs published in 2023 is an indication of the growing interest in indigenous food. Today we'll look back on what's driving that interest and how it's changing the narrative for contemporary cooking. We'll also get an update on a major project to restore food sovereignty for the Yurok and other tribes in Northern California. And we'll find out about some of the exciting things happening at the federal level to support tribal food sovereignty efforts. We'll also hear about some of the innovations coming from a native chef with a new post in the Pacific Northwest. You can join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Mill Valley, California, is Sarah Calvosa Olson. She is a foodways worker and author of Chiminuam, Native California Foodways for the Contemporary Kitchen. She's Karuk. Welcome back to the menu, Sarah. Thank you for having me. So this year we saw four uh, native cookbooks coming out, uh, including yours, Jimmy Nuam. Um, and, they, and the others are uh, Seed to Plate, Soil to Sky by Lois Allen Frank and Walter Whitewater from here in New Mexico. Uh, Corn Dance by Loretta Barrett Odin over in Oklahoma. And then uh, we're going to go ahead and um, uh, include Survival Food. Uh, Northern Wood Stories by a Menominee Chef, which is by Thomas Picor Wieso. Um, we talked about 
most of these cookbooks uh, during the menu, uh, previous menus. Um, so, which which uh, what does this tell you about uh, the interest in native food this year? Yeah, I think that people are. I, I I have a feeling it goes back kind of to the pandemic, and people were sort of. Um, forced to really take a look at our food systems and seeing the flaws in our food systems as they are right now and looking for a better way, I think, personally for themselves, like looking for a better way to do things and a, a way to feel more food secure. And I think that is kind of the heart of, of our food ways is about food security. And also, I think it's exciting that all of these innovations are coming out. And I think it also just shows that all of, like, all of these different communities, our different tribal communities, we're all working inside of our communities, being creative with our foods and, and developing these connections with our foods inside of our communities. So I'm, I have been just so excited about uh, seeing everybody's take and their creativity, and you can really see that blossoming. So... I, I think it has to do with food security, but also mm -hmm. some like needing this connection of creativity as well. Yeah. And uh, so what does that also tell you about how publishers are interested in indigenous food and stories? Yeah. And I, I feel like I credit the sous chef for that, for really sort of kicking open the door and seeing and showing everybody that this is, that people are interested in these stories and interested in in these um, types of food ways. So I think that was really helpful to pave the way for the rest of us to come through and show publishers that other people are interested in these stories. Yeah. So um, how important is it for Native stories and food to uh, make this kind of presence in the, the cookbook universe? Um, maybe you can explain just how important it is to, to, uh, to, to be able to tell your story through a cookbook, too. Yeah. Well, I, I think we're the best storytellers. We're definitely the best tellers of our own stories, and I think that that there's so much interconnectedness between our skills uh, when it comes to like food work or art, basketry, science, storytelling. Those all connect together, and in our stories, they have all this context behind them that are, I think people are really craving right now. They want the context. They want to know what we know. So I think they're more interested in in really like being still and paying attention to these stories. And they're just, I, I just could, you know, read, I could read our stories all day long and listen to them all day long. And um, yeah, I, I think that it must resonate with everybody. Mm hmm and uh, what, um, you know, for folks who may not be uh, avid uh, cookbook readers like uh, myself and, and you, <laughs> uh, what are you, what can be found in a cookbook? It's, it's not just recipes. Uh, what else are, are we getting from uh, cracking open a cookbook? 
I am like surrounded right now by all of these cookbooks. I'm just sitting here. I have so many cookbooks right here. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to crack them open and find some of my favorite pieces of each one of them. And there's so many as I was going through, I was like, oh, yeah, like this um, Shane Chartrand, his Tawal Progressive Indigenous Cuisine cookbook has this recipe for stained glass salmon. Mm. And it is something that I have been wanting to try. It is so beautiful. And I think that's one of the things that I love about our cookbooks is there's, there's art in this book and there's art, but there's also technique and storytelling. There's humor, there's history. Uh, and I love seeing, you know, the variety between people, you know, food workers, agriculture workers, chefs, and, you know, this whole, you can see the whole spectrum of food worker in, in our cookbooks. And I think that's really exciting. They're colorful. So, yeah. 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 And, and as you're, um, you know, flipping through, sometimes it's just the photos uh, that really give you some really good ideas about how to use an ingredient. I mean, you don't have to um, exactly go by the recipe. Uh, sometimes, you know, reading these recipes just really gives you an idea of how you could use uh, different ingredients in your own kitchen. And it kind of gets you really excited to try something new, to try a recipe exactly as it's written. And um, in, in the cookbooks I mentioned, like uh, Seed to Plate, Soil to Sky by Lois Ellen Frank, she um, starts off with a really long introduction, um, kind of textbook style that goes over, um, you know, what the native food sovereignty movement is. And she shares a little bit of her journey. Um, Walter Whitewater, who's Navajo, he gets to share uh, his journey in here too and has very you know heavy influences from the southwest because that's where they're from they're from here and then uh corn dance by loretta barrett odin uh that one is uh the same too and and uh because she has been um you know uh you know the grandmother (laughs) of Mm -hmm. uh, uh indigenous food the native food movement uh you know she has this wealth of knowledge and connection uh, to everybody in the Native food movement. And she gets to tell that story uh, in her cookbook. And um, it, it just really adds to, you know, the uniqueness, even though both of these um, really kind of have very similar uh, recipes. They have the same kind of ingredients. They're just, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, cooked different ways. I mean, yeah, every recipe is is pretty different. Every recipe looks delicious in here, in, in all of these books, including your own. You get to tell your own story. Uh, tell us again a little bit about how you added your own story to this cookbook and uh, why um, you know, it was important for you to do that, uh, telling uh, folks about Native California foodways. Yeah, I I hadn't, I mean, I've been writing a column for News from Native California, doing, you know, work with other, interviewing other food workers around California Indian country, and then including some of my own recipes that I've been developing since my kids were little to help connect them to these foods. So I, uh, and then I had intended to have this be more of a book of essays and, you know, not as much of a, as a straight cookbook, 
but then the pandemic happened and I wasn't able to travel. So it became very personal with all of these recipes that I developed for my family and that I've developed over the years. So I mean, over the last 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, it, it was really for me very exciting to be able to do food writing because I've been a food writer for a while to, to be a food writer that where I can write exclusively through my own lens and through the context of my own history and upbringing. So that was, that for me was just such an incredible opportunity, but also very nerve wracking. I know it's really hard to be vulnerable in these books and, and we're really, you know, you're really putting your, your whole spirit into it. And so I have a lot, uh, I'm so excited about these new books, but and I, I think that's why I have a lot of love and, and connection for, for all of the cookbooks that are that have come out and are coming out and for all of the, you know, food workers that right. are really, you know, doing it in their communities. Yeah. And uh, before we go to the uh, break here in a moment, uh, what would you like to see uh, in the future? Uh, what, what kind of native cookbook would you like to see uh, in 2024? Yeah, I'd like to see more young people um, connecting and cooking. I'd like to see them feeling confident and experimenting and being creative and feeling feeling empowered to do that and for publishers to really pursue that. Right. All right. Uh, we are reviewing uh, this year in Indigenous Food on the Menu here on Native America Calling. We'll be back after this break, but you can join us too. Tell us about your favorite Native cookbook or your, your favorite cookbook. We're at 1 800 996 2848. The Northern Lights are more than a dazzling light show in the night sky. They're a source of traditional stories and wisdom. For some tribes, they hold clues from ancestors. For others, they're a warning. We'll learn more about the Northern Lights on the next Native America Calling. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online master class in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You are listening to The Menu on Native America Calling, our special feature on Indigenous food news and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy. We were just talking with cookbook writer Sarah Cavilsa Olson about all the Indigenous food cookbooks that came out this year. You can join us too. What cookbooks are you into? Have there been any new indigenous food initiatives and programs happening in your area? Tell us about it by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's go to our regular caller, Chinupa, over at the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, listening on Keeley. 
Young lady, I appreciate you guys taking my call. What I wanted to add on to your guys' uh, show today, I'm it's a way of life that I give all of you with an open heart. You know, um, as a volunteer cook, and I'm a self-taught cook that took uh, recipes from my late um, aunt, uh, Pearl Dixon, Cedar Face, and then my late mother, Yvonne Martin, and my late grandmother, Cecilia Martin, okay? So... Today, we have a holiday of the Bigfoot Memorial Ride because today's the day they massacred Chief Bigfoot and his people, and one of my grandfathers is laying with them, named Nuche uh, Waniche, No Ears. So what I wanted to contribute today is that as a volunteer cook, every Friday I make biscuits and fried potatoes and buffalo giblets out of gravy, Okay. And the reason I make this gravy for my elders is nutritious, it's healthy, and it, in, it, it increases their life expansion. Because using our animals like the buffalo, buffalo was a staple diet to our people's, you know, well-being. And we don't do that anymore. People don't take on the food sovereignty as an open, you know, way of promoting something to help their children and the elders that need that nutrition. So that's what I want to contribute today because I know my mom had um, one of her food topics on making bread, and Aunt Pearl had one of making cornmeal, and they're in cookbooks, both Mm. of them. It's going to have Yvonne Martin and Pearl Dixon's name on there. They're the ones who put their own recipes for making bread and uh, cornbread. You know, that's what I wanted to share with you guys. And keep up the good work, Native American calling. You guys are always, man, ranked number one in my books. (laughs) Ha-ho from Pine Ridge. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Chinupa. Uh, Let's go over to uh, Orleans, California. We have Analia Hillman with us. She's the Food Village Coordinator for the Yurok Tribe Food Sovereignty Program, and she's a member of the Yurok Tribe. Welcome to the menu, Analia. Excuse me, just getting over cold. All right. Yeah. Are, are, are we all this time? <laughs> um, so one dam was dismantled this year on the Klamath River there in Northern California. Uh, can you give us a review and a visual of that event? Um, I mean, we were just sitting around like it, this has been unreal, mm-hmm. this whole process of taking down dams like it was an unbelievable process that could could happen and so when that moment came when we got the call that hey they they took down Copco too so there's four dams on the river that were taken down and and so this year uh Copco too was dismantled and it was so exciting to get that call because it was like this is really happening um we we did it um and and then we did get the opportunity to go up there to the construction site and see um, the work that was being done. And we got to see the river flowing free in that section that, you know, it hasn't flown free in, in so long. Um, so that was very exciting. You know, Copco 2 is between Iron Gate and uh, the other two dams, uh, Copco 1 and J.C. Boyle. And um, so it's not uh, completely flowing free, but in that section, yeah, we were able to hear the water, like just the 
voice of the water, the song that it sang, like, of freedom and, um, like, wellness. It was, it, it was just um, this amazing experience to hear that water and, and what it was saying and knowing that what we've done is a, is a great thing and, um, you know, just looking forward to the rest of the river flowing free. Yeah, and what's the timeline there? When will the rest of the river flow free? Well, uh, the uh, next three dams should be dismantled in this year, in 2024. Um, in fact, in next month, in January, they'll, they'll be drawing down the water and preparing the dams for removal. Okay. All right, so it, it's a, not completely like a, a rush of water and salmon flowing through the, the land and trees there. Um, there's a whole process, and, and there's a process that includes uh, trees and uh, wild, um, wild plants there. How are uh, tribal members managing that part of uh, the restoration there in the area? Yeah, so we actually... Um formed a corporation to take care of all the the restoration part of of the work um the Klamath renewal corporation and so tribes are actually working together um this was never uh something that one tribe did like we all work together to make this happen um you know the the Yaduk, or the Yurok, uh the Karuk, um the upper basin folks the Klamath, Moroks you know um we it was it's an effort we we did together and that's the same with the restoration piece also like we're all going to be working together you know our fisheries departments and as far as the plants go we had a group of people in the last few years that have been gathering native seeds along the river and we plan to uh, replant those seeds along the the newly exposed uh, riverbanks okay all right. And uh, how long before you see salmon running? And um, what are the projections for salmon populations uh, on into the future when all the dams are gone? Yeah, well, I'm not a scientist, so I don't have all those numbers and figures for mm -hmm. you. But I can tell you um, that, yeah, they, they will return. We've seen what happened on the Elwha River, right, where that dam was removed. Like, it was just like almost instantaneous that things started to restore themselves along the river. And so we definitely see like our salmon populations growing, you know, expanding their ability to spawn, you know, um, being able to return to old spawning grounds, um, being able to make it back up into the upper basin. Like that's huge for us and huge for the salmon runs. It's just like creating more habitat for them. Um, where, you know, everything's been so combined and, and, and imprisoned with these dams. And so this is really going to give our, not only our salmon, but our other fish species, our eels, our sturgeon, you know, the, the habitat that they need. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you're the uh, food village coordinator uh, for the tribe. What is a food village? Oh, uh, food village. So this is a concept that... Uh, our environmental program director came up with um, uh, Louisa McCovey, and she—it's this idea of creating these like food hubs 
along the river, um, kind of like, yeah, like these, I guess, places where we share information, um, where we come together to process foods, where we come together to collect foods, um, to cook foods together. So it's kind of like these like villages where it's uh, inter- intergenerational learning happens and being able to, again, revive our food systems like we were talking about before, like, um, just uh, creating this place for knowledge, just like our, our villages once were, the, these places where knowledge was shared, right, where we grew together, where we nursed each other. So that's the idea of these, these food villages. Okay. All right, and um, uh, it's along the river. Um, where where is that project right now? Is are are uh, people able to visit these villages now? No, we haven't actually done any structures at this point. The food villages are a garden space, <laughs> so we're starting with small gardens. Um, you know, agriculture has been actually really. Um, detrimental to our river and our ecosystem so we're not trying to do like grow huge swaths of food right mm-hmm. we're we're starting small with these small gardens again this this place to learn this place to reconnect um, back to the land and so that's kind of where we're starting you know uh, these things take time to get the buildings and the infrastructure and all that um, our hope is to have um, you know, commercial kitchens and food storage space and all that. But uh, right now we're just a little garden. <laughs> all right. Hopefully it doesn't take as long as a... Uh, uh, you know, Dam removal? Dam <laughs> removal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we'll uh, be keeping an eye on um, on that program. It uh, sounds exciting. Uh, thank you, Analia, for all this information and update on the dam removal over there in uh, uh, Northern California. Um, so uh, joining us now is um, uh, Harley Moore Wilson. Uh, she's the Osage Nation Director of Natural Resources and Food Sovereignty. And uh, I want to talk to talk to her about uh, the agriculture side of indigenous food, the federal and tribal side of all of this, because there were a couple of big policies and programs that helped boost access to funds and tribal control over food systems uh, that happened this year in 2023. Uh, Welcome, Harley, to the menu. Thank you for having me. So the USDA, the, um, uh, um, yeah, the USDA is um, now owning up to past wrongs, and it initiated the Discrimination Financial Assistance Program. Uh, What is that program? So this program is a part of the Inflation Reduction Act, and it's just a section of it, but this program basically does say that the USDA is owning up to that on um, the use of discriminatory practices. So they created roadblocks for some of our tribal producers as far as maybe they didn't provide the loans necessary, or they even sometimes delayed loan applications. Um, And it just created some really hard burdens, some problems that caused tribal producers to not be able to 
receive the funds they needed to continue to operate or to buy the land at that point in time. Okay. Uh, so do you know um, uh, where tribal producers can uh, maybe get more information about this program or what, uh, where they can find out, like, eligibility? Yeah, of course. So the USDA is providing um, technical assistance. They do have a call center. But also, if we're not necessarily comfortable with going directly to the USDA to ask some of these questions, uh, some of our partnerships through, like, the Intertribal Ag Council, they have some technical assistance. Um, The Indigenous Food and Agricultural Initiative has some technical assistance that they're able to be able to provide to give you more information on this program. Um, And even some of our other technical assistance producers through the USDA, such as Flower Hill Institute, has information about this program to be able to share to tribal producers. And your local offices will be able to help you also. But the the indigenous side of things, um, we tend to be a little more comfortable going to those indigenous-specific programs. Right, right. Uh, You mentioned that this was part of the Inflation Reduction Act um, uh, that passed in uh, August 2022. Um, How did this get uh, wrapped up into um, that Inflation Reduction Act? So I believe it just became wrapped up in that and as far as trying to increase indigenous food sovereignty. And so it was it was noticed that our supply chains broke in uh, COVID. And so a lot of tribal nations were looking at building those food supply chains, and the USDA noticed those things. And so they said they sat down and decided to be able to add um, this as a part of the Inflation Reduction Act to be able to provide funding for those individuals who have been discriminated against. Yeah. And uh, what kind of funding are we talking about um, that uh, uh, ranchers, farmers, landowners um, are, are applying for? Um, what kind of projects are they wanting to fund, like large agriculture uh, programs or... Yeah, so typically, okay, the pot is about $2.2 million. So there's a, there's a pretty large pot of money out there, but they're looking to fund indigenous agriculture um, and those individuals who were trying to become farmers and ranchers to begin with um, that re- received the discrimination when they were trying to receive a loan through uh, the Farm Service Agency. And so they're really trying to increase you know, uh, minority agriculture, depending on if it's farmers or ranchers. And my understanding is that the funding amount is dependent on what you were trying to ask for on your loan. Got it. Okay. And so the USDA um, launched the Indigenous Food Sovereignty Initiative, uh, and this was back in 2021. Uh, can you briefly explain what this initiative is and, and what the new components are that were added this year? Yeah, of course. So 
uh, indigenous food sovereignty is giving indigenous people the ability to feed their own people within their own terms. So you're looking at promoting food waste from different indigenous farmers to providing culturally significant foods to providing healthy foods and providing the access to these foods. And so there are lots of initiatives and this year's um, main initiative is called the Sovereignty Garden. And so these Sovereignty Gardens is basically trying to increase children's education within food sovereignty and understanding the knowledge of agriculture and how it connects to uh, their food waste. Okay. All right. Um, we'll, we'll continue with that uh, after this break. Uh, you're listening to the menu on Native America Calling. We're looking back at this year in Native food sovereignty. Support by Archaeology Southwest. Did you know almost all major archaeological sites in the Southwest have been looted or vandalized? Looting and vandalism impact indigenous people, past, present, and future. Every day, countless Native American cultural items are lost or damaged forever through looting and vandalism. Federal and tribal laws protect archaeological resources. More information about ending archaeological resource crime and how to submit a tip at savehistory.org and on social media at Save History. This is The Menu on Native America Calling, our feature on Indigenous Food Sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy, and we're looking back at food highlights from the year. There's still time to join us. What to 2023? What 2023 food initiatives or programs made waves in your Native community? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'm going to go back to Harley Moore-Wilson over in Oklahoma. Um, Harley, uh, just before the break, you mentioned Sovereignty Gardens. It's a, it's a children's show that is uh, promoting uh, agriculture, farming, to young people, uh, kids, to children. Um, why is this important uh, to reach that really, really young audience? There is such a knowledge gap um, when Europeans in, came over to the United States. And so we're targeting those young children to be able to start decreasing the knowledge gap that will a lot of us have experienced. And so if you're able to educate your children at such a young age, then that will help build um, a more sovereign nation and tribal uh, tribal community um, because those children will be engaged in wanting to grow their own food and provide healthy food and provide traditional food while creating healthy eating habits. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, understanding that is just so good for our children to be able to participate in. 
Right, right. I watched um, a couple of episodes uh, yesterday, and um, it, it's a, like a puppet, um, you know, an, an animation show, uh, Stompy the Buffalo, and then I think Bran is another character, and they kind of have these little adventures and little learning moments here and there. Um, it, it's pretty cute. Um, I, I can imagine it would spark uh, a lot of interest in young people to get out there especially in the dirt and <laughs> start to grow something um uh, you were just on the show a couple weeks ago talking about the indigenous animals harvesting and uh meat processing grants that's another uh big thing that happened this year on uh the federal level can you just briefly explain uh what what that is yeah so on the federal level it is the government understanding that Tribal nations need the ability to feed themselves, and, and they're wanting to do so. And so this grant opportunity is providing tribal nations the ability to come up with a proposal to be able to harvest indigenous-specific animals that may not be included on other um, grant applications that were out there. Right, right. And um, uh, December 12th is when we had that whole show on um, on this program and other traditional harvesting uh, methods. If you want to go back and listen to that show and learn more about it. Uh, thanks, Harley, for uh, updating us on uh, highlights from the federal ag realm of indigenous food sovereignty here. I want to go over to uh, Jack strong in wilsonville oregon he's the executive chef of the allison inn and spa he's salitz welcome to the menu chef strong good morning happy to be on so you've been listening to the conversation so far uh what do you think about uh this year's um trajectory of native food I think it's great. You know, when I was uh, a young chef, you know, there wasn't wasn't a lot of native chefs really out there, um, and definitely not so in the mainstream. And so it's really uh, great that there's more uh, focus on first foods and native foods, more uh, tribal members that are uh, getting recognized for their work and hard work, whether it be with their communities and their cuisine and their craft. So it's been really nice. The, the, I always say the more native chefs, the better. Right. <laughs> so um, you've been shaking things up there in the Pacific Northwest uh, in your new position as executive chef. Uh, how have indigenous foods and ingredients been implemented into uh, the menu there? Well, what I like to do is I, I really, um, over the years, I've really focused on, on place and first foods. Just foods have always been here. So before the first European foot that, you know, stepped on whether it be North America, Central South, these are foods that are from the Americas. And I like to just tell their story, whether that be the humble potato or, or corn or beans or squash, um, and highlight those. And really, it's just kind of uh, really telling the story of this is from here or why is, it, why is it important, whether it be mussels or clams to coastal tribes that have been, you know, harvesting for, you know, generations. It's really just a lot of people don't maybe realize that squash is from here. An heirloom tomato is from the Americas. They think of heirloom tomatoes and 
Maybe it's Italian, it's pasta and tomatoes. Well, there would be no spaghetti if it wasn't for the tomatoes that came from the Americas through the trade routes. And just telling those stories has really been a kind of a fun highlight for me to be able to, be able to do up here in the Northwest. I've done it for years now, but I really focused in on more of the of place um, in my cuisine these days. And then uh, working at, we have a 1.5 acre garden, a chef's garden, that's a working garden. And foods that come out of there, are there are some first foods. So it's been almost nice to be able to highlight some of those that are right across the street. Okay. And um, the the restaurant there and um, all the other uh, places where food is served at um, Allison Inn and Spa is pretty upscale. Um, it, it, everything there looks just gorgeous. And uh, you sent me a couple of photos of a dinner that you prepared uh, the other uh, last month. But um, I wanted to ask, how, how easily do indigenous ingredients lend themselves to that kind of upscale treatment and presentation? I was, I was really, uh, learned a lot when I was honored to be the chef de cuisine of a restaurant called Kai. Um, down in the Arizona in the Southwest. And we were the first uh, Native American-owned, operated uh, facility to uh, go AAA Five Diamond and Forbes Five Stars. And it was completely high-end. And we told, I really learned how to tell stories uh, through our cuisine there. And it was, you know, it's, it's still the only Five Five restaurant in the state of Arizona. And so I really learned a lot there in my three years. And I've been in kind of on the high-end side, luxury properties throughout my entire career. Um, and what I've been able to really kind of hone in my skills is to be able to take these humble ingredients because they really are and uh, bring them to a level that is as high end as any caviar or foie gras or lobster and really uh, kind of showcase those items. Like we did this uh, potato dish on the uh, Heritage Dinner, which I thought was amazing, um, using Ozette potatoes, which is one of the uh, oldest potatoes to be um, grown here in the Pacific Northwest. It was uh, grown for centuries by the Macaw tribe, but also uh, I was able to um, basically highlight that in two different ways. I, had, I did have a piece of duck breast on there, but it was all a potato dish, but it was just a beautiful dish. And I think I sent that picture to you. Um, so it's really, it's really fun to be able to um, highlight each course that we did. One was heirloom tomatoes and chili peppers. We used Olympia oyster, which is the um, only native oyster to the Northwest. But then we really focused in on the tomatoes and chili peppers as, as the components of that dish, as the course. Um, I did heirloom tomato water from our garden across the street. It was like the last of the heirloom tomatoes of the season. And then I made tomato water with it. And then I did it in a couple different um, techniques as far as a gelée. And then we made a sorbet with it. So all kinds of fun stuff highlighting these uh, first foods. Right. And uh, what uh, what did um, diners learn from that special dinner? Well, they learned that all these items, uh, squash, potatoes, beans, these are all mainstream items. These are not, you know, um, sacred, like hard to get to, only used in ceremonies type of items. Um, these are items that are out there. But also, uh, these are items from here in First Foods. And a lot of people don't necessarily know that. Uh, I did share a few like special things with the guests that night. They they will probably never have again. Um, I was uh, when I was in the Southwest. I had many connections, a lot of friends. I was able, I was invited to do a uh, syrup harvest um, down uh, by the border, and uh, 
we had some friends send us some saguaro syrup as a gift earlier in the year. And so actually I shared that with, um, it was about 60 people at this dinner. You know, uh, I did a heirloom tomato sorbet and we put some of the saguaro syrup over it with like a pine nut herb and a tarragon little crust. Mm. And uh, just kind of talked about the harvest and what that was like. And then sharing that saguaro syrup with them. So I, I think they, what I can't, what I uh, had the most fun with with the guests and connecting was this a little bit of the education while you're having a great meal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, uh, you know, you're back in. You just mentioned you were in Arizona for a while, and now you're back in your home country in the, the Pacific Northwest. There, um, are there any uh, maybe s- special stories or um, uh, I- ingredients, histories that uh, you really want to share with diners that come from uh, specifically maybe your tribe? Yeah, so when I first came back, um, one of the dishes that I collaborated with my team on, because I have a great team at the Allison, um, but I really wanted to highlight was uh, some kind of it's kind of a funny story. So when we came back after the pandemic, um, we hadn't been back to the coast for over three years, and so my wife was really craving mussels. It just like it was it just speaks of place and being home, and so uh, we did that. We went um, harvested just a few mussels when we came back, shared it with family. And it just like it's kind of just like your home when we ate those. And so uh, when I was when I was appointed as exec chef, me and my team put on a dish. It was a mussel dish, and we were pulling gourds from our garden across the street. So we made a butternut squash kume or broth, um, and then um, we made some homemade venison uh, sausage. We do a lot of our own charcuterie there at the property, so we made venison sausage to add to this dish. And then uh, we had a nice focaccia coming from the pastry team to dip into it, but. What I was able to share with the servers and then with the guests is that mussels have been harvested by coastal tribes, including ours, for you know generations and generations, and how important it is and a staple food for coastal tribes. And I kind of just talked a little bit about the mussels and then tie that in with the garden itself. So that's what I've been really enjoying is when I can tie something in with our garden across the street and how fresh that is being you know harvested daily for us over there and highlight foods that are from this region, whether it be spruce tips or huckleberries. Um, definitely, it's been it's been really, really fun. And uh, the focus will be, hopefully, going into the future, will be to do more of these type of dinners to highlight first foods. And then, of course, foods from this region. Right. And uh, speaking of cookbooks, uh, you contributed to um, the New Native American Cuisine Cookbook. Uh, This was back in 2009. How have things changed since then? I just got dated right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, 2009. Um, that was actually a great uh, – that, that particular experience was um, we I co-authored it with my exec chef and our writer. And it was really great because uh, we partnered with the Gila River Tribe and the resort there, uh, Sheraton Wild Horse Pass. And the first part of the cookbook really was telling about the history of the tribe. It was, it was all about their culture and history. And then the second part, we went into all the great food we were doing there at Kai. And, of course, a lot, all of it, all of it is all focusing on – North, uh, Southwest, sorry, for the most part, with some things brought into it from other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say is uh, over the years and what's changed now is I like to um, still focus on those first foods, but t- I really learned how to tell stories there. Um, 
And one dish in particular that's in that book that I, I always kind of like go back to, which is a great dish, is a, it's like a winter gourd soup. It's, it's grilled. So we used to go down and um, sometimes I just head down I-10 and I meet a travel member um, from one of the farms and pick up all these gourds and buy it right. So the money goes right into community. That's what mm-hmm. I really love is if we can buy from native producers and that money goes right back into community. But then we bring the gourds back, we grill them up, we make a soup with it. And then we served it on a, like a real zape puree, kind of like an indigenous uh, heirloom bean puree. And then uh, we put cotton candy on it. And we put a little bit of chili spice on top of that cotton candy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the soup was poured at the table, the server could talk about the ingredients. Then they would talk about the cotton candy. As it's like melting into your soup, the cotton candy represented all of the cotton that was um, on the reservation there that the tribe is known for their, their Pima cotton <laughs> and how it rivals the best cotton in the world. And uh, it's also adding sweetness and spice to the soup, but that diner gets to learn a little bit like, wow, all that cotton along the I-10 is on tribal lands is Pima cotton. It talks about their agriculture because that's a very big agriculture is a big piece of that tribe. And so to be able to tell all of that in a bowl of soup was something that I, I thought was really amazing. Mm-hmm. And so I try to do that today in, in different dishes that I do now. Um, that's the biggest thing I've kind of gleaned from that experience was uh, tell stories through food and maybe have some fun and whimsy while you do it. Yeah, I'm I'm actually looking at that recipe right now. It's, um, <laughs> you know, when you were describing it, uh, maybe folks might think of, you know, blue cotton candy or pink cotton candy, but it's white, uh, it's white cotton and um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty. I love it. Does it add very much like a lot of sweetness to the, the soup or how does it change its flavor just, once just, it melts? Just, just enough. It does. It does add sweetness to it. And that mm-hmm. for that picture, you know, we did uh, over-dramatize a little bit of the cotton candy because we wanted to tell the story of the cotton. Mm-hmm. So in the dining room itself, it would be a little smaller piece of cotton candy than that. Mm-hmm. And then the um, the chili spice on top, it was just enough where when that added to it, you got that sweet and spice um, that really complemented that kind of charred, smoky, butternut squash soup that we made. And all of those are really simple type of uh, ingredients. You know, it's really just highlighting, letting the food speak for itself and then that dish spoke of place and of uh, people um, mm-hmm. that you know really prized their agricultural uh, part of their community. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining uh, Chef Strong. Uh, we'll keep an eye on everything else you'll be doing at the at the inn and spa over there. It looks very exciting. Um, I want to thank our other guests who joined us. Sarah Calvulsa Olson, uh, Analia Hillman, and Harley Moore Wilson. Have a safe weekend and Happy New Year. I am Andy Murphy, producer and host of The Menu on Native America Calling. Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees. Info and applications at nativeforward.org who support this show. This program is supported by AmeriCorps VISTA. You can kickstart your career by joining thousands of AmeriCorps members in the VISTA program serving to alleviate poverty. 
AmeriCorps members help organizations make change right in their own community. A service opportunity that fits your ambition can be found at americorps.gov vista today. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.